In this episode of the Explore Information Security Podcast, what is malware analysis? Part two. Welcome to the Explore Information Security Podcast, where you will learn, explore, and grow your security mindset. I am your host, Timothy D. Block, and in this episode, we will continue our exploration of what is malware analysis with Daniel Ebbett. What's your What's your experience been with anti malware analysis? So there are certain techniques for that. What What's been your experience with samples that come in that have anti malware analysis? So again, that's a very broad term. I haven't really seen a whole lot of Office and PDF stuff that is intelligent enough to know that it's being analyzed. But this is where we would get into the into analyzing unknown binaries, which is ultimately what a lot of these macro droppers and PDFs try to get you to download and run. Uh, binary payloads are a lot more versatile. They can do a lot more damage. They can do a lot more stuff. By which I mean just downloading an executable, basically, a DLL or an executable that, that Windows can load. Um, and this, the, all, all of these kinds of malware have a variety of different ways in which they can detect that they're being analyzed and stop their functioning or maybe do something different. For example, uh, a very common way for malware to detect that it's being analyzed is to check for the presence of a debugger. Am I running under a debugger? Uh, there, is, there are easy ways to, for a program to, to see if it's running, if it's being debugged, basically. Um, and if it's being debugged, don't do anything or quit or delete the sample or something. So do something different than you would otherwise do if somebody was running it just on their computer. So detect, just detecting a debugger is, is obviously very effective. Uh, but again, you can get around these things as an analyst because you can control the sample. You can short circuit some of its checks in some cases. Um, other things, oh, there's a really dumb one that I really love. I think I, I, I saw this method posited in a slide deck uh, for VM detection. And all you do is you see how many cores the machine that you're running on has. And if it has one core, <laughs> decide that you're in a VM and quit. Because a lot of our machines these days are multi-core, right? And if, if you're running in a v, if, if your machine only has one logical core, it's probably a pretty good uh, a, a pretty good indicator that you're running inside a virtual machine and you might be being analyzed. And I know that sounds dumb, <laughs> and I think it is dumb, but I think it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. There's there's a. Uh... We had Wes Widener on to talk about Mac malware, and yeah. he said there's some malware out there that if it sees little little snitch running, oh, it's yes, just like yes. quit. It's just like I'm done. Nope, right, nope, indeed. Nope, nope. And some of these things are pretty obvious, and they sound dumb, but they work. And so these techniques will be employed. I have yet to see the single core detection be employed in the wild, um, but I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it sometime. But yeah, stuff like that. Indeed, is little snitch running. Am I running under the in the presence of a debugger? Are the sys internals tools running? You know, is a process monitor monitoring stuff that's happening, uh, stuff like that. You know, a binary can can do pretty much anything at once, particularly if it is given administrator access. But even if it isn't, you can still detect things like what's installed on the machine, other things that are running, things like that. Um, I'm trying to think about other interesting techniques that I have seen. Well, so so that leads to a question of: Are you looking at source code for this stuff, or are you like reverse engineering it to look at source code? So in the case of malware binaries, there is no source code that you can see. It was not shipped with the product, unfortunately. Yeah. Right, the right. Time, it's not open source. You well, can't I'm just, yeah, I'm just yeah, talking so, about so, in general. Right. So, so, well, sometimes you can get the source code because sometimes things are on GitHub. But anyway, so you just get a sample. You've got no source code. You've got an executable. So 
there are a bunch of different, I, I guess I should just describe my general process for triaging a binary sample then. Um, sort of carrying on from earlier when we've opened our PDF and we've clicked on our link and we've downloaded our, our executable sample. Um, the first thing that I would do when I've got an executable sample is I will look at the different sections that are in the, that are in the executable. The Windows Portable Executable is well documented. It has a format, it has a structure, and it can be passed. There are, there are tools to make that easier to do. And I'm going to try and remember to talk about some of them <laughs> very shortly. Um, but just looking at the looking at the sections, looking at the imports, by which I mean seeing which system calls it makes, seeing which DLLs it references, and seeing which functions in those DLLs it calls um, inside of its code. Uh, for example, a really good uh, tool that I like to get a, a good overview of a sample is Resource Hacker, which will show you embedded icons, and it'll show you all the different sections, and it'll show you the import section. It'll show you, it, it will give you an interesting overview uh, in, in general. of you, you, you can make some inferences about what a sample does based on the functions that it imports, uh, even if you don't know exactly how it calls them yet. Um, <clears throat> but to get into more detail with a sample, you would use a disassembler. Um, something like Ollie Debug can do this, or something like IDA Pro can do this, and it will load the binary and it will show you the assembly instructions, basically. And especially in the case of IDA Pro, um, it will do some automated analysis and try to present you with a, a clear view of what the code does. Uh, in IDA Pro's case, it even draws you a nice little graph to show you which calls go where and which jumps go where and things like that. And again, you'll be able to see all of the different function calls that it makes, all the different system calls that it makes from which DLLs. Um, and you can see, in some cases, you can see, you know, you can see the arguments that it uses. Uh, in some cases, you may need to run the sample. You may need to perform dynamic analysis to actually figure out exactly what is going on. But even just static analysis, that is running, uh, analyzing a binary without actually executing it, um, can be very useful. And you can discover a lot of different things. Um, I've forgotten what the original question was, Tim. <laughs> But I'm sure it was in there somewhere. Uh, no, it, it, and it, yeah, it was just around the source code and and whether or not where you get it from. Oh, I, I, yeah. I I I think yeah. I I can see where so something like Mariabot and is like open source, so you can go look at the code there. Exactly. Yes. So something that I was going to get to was there are tools that will allow you to decompile code and try to produce source code mm -hmm. from a compiled binary. And it is very hit and miss. I don't really use a decompiler very much. There are a handful of cases in the last 18 months have I pressed the decompile button. It's usually not very useful. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, I'd rather look at the assembly code than I'd, than I'd look at this automatically generated code Okay. My, uh, that my decompiler has produced. Um, also, in the case of, of samples that have been manually written in assembly, especially with, section, with maybe sections of it have been manually written, the decompiler isn't really designed to do that. The decompiler is, is designed to, uh, to handle code that was emitted from a compiler originally. So it can be very hit or miss. So in general, you're dealing with assembly code, which is a little bit scary for some people. <laughs> and it, I think it's a, it creates a pretty high barrier to entry as well in, into our analysis. And right. Some people think that it's black magic, and some people think that it's scary, and to an extent, it is both of those things, I suppose. <laughs> so, so that, that that leads to my next question. Then is is what skills do you feel like give you the advantage in doing malware analysis? Like, what have you noticed that you do really well that really helps with uh, getting into this field? Oh man, I I can say nothing other than 
having a strong computer science background. I know that some people are going to think that that sounds terrible, but it, it has helped me a lot. Just learning the fundamentals of how operating systems work, how computers work, how CPUs work uh, in particular is very useful. Learning, I, yeah. No, I could totally see that, especially with, with yeah. malware that's interacting with the computer. You better know right. how how everything works together and, and how right. it, you know, yeah. why why macros are really bad and why it allows malware right. to do what it needs to do. Right. I'm, I'm not just talking about learning x86 assembly um, or indeed other architectures, but uh, even just knowing things about calling conventions. Even when you're looking at disassembly, knowing what the assembly mnemonics mean is only half of it. Uh, knowing how to sort of reconstruct meaning from uh, a disassembly is knowing how a computer works is very useful is all I can really say and I, I have a computer science background and I'm very thankful for that and I would not be as good at my job if I did not have that uh, the other side of that is knowing about operating systems internals knowing how operating systems work and knowing how executables interact with their operating systems mm -hmm. and I, I'm just I'm still learning about Windows <laughs> Because well, it's I'm always changing too, right? I mean, they it's come out with the new. Oh man, yes, exactly. Microsoft, even if Microsoft just release a a, a small-ish feature patch, perhaps it can change how the operating system works under the covers in subtle ways. And an interesting example that I'm remembering, um, I believe, with the with the creators update for Windows 10, the process table in memory got shifted by four bytes and broke a bunch of tools, broke broke a bunch of memory forensics tools. Uh, of course. It's not it, it, these sort of internal changes aren't documented. Although Microsoft's documentation for their API is very good, so if you see malware calling particular uh, system functions out of Windows DLLs, you can generally look them up on TechNet and see what those functions do, which is very very useful. So although Windows is closed source, we can't look at the kernel source like we can for Linux. We can still figure out how to use it. We can still figure out how malware is using the Windows API because the Windows API is very well documented. This is the only time I'll say this. Good job, Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> so have, we've, we've kind of focused on Microsoft and beat up on them a little bit. Have you seen other malware samples, or is that just not something you worry about because your environment doesn't have a lot of other operating um, systems? So the although my job is malware analysis, I am sort of limited by the environment in which I work. I don't work for a, for a security company. I work for a, a business that, that you know has business to conduct. And so I'm limited by their environment. And the environment that I live in is Windows. I don't get to see any interesting Mac samples, usually. I mean, some samples are targeted. Sometimes you see a bunch of stuff that is obviously not very targeted to our industry. But I've yet to capture any interesting Macintosh samples. I know you had uh, you, you had your, a previous podcast on Macintosh, and I thought it was pretty good. And I was interested, too, because it's new to me, right? I've never, right. I've never encountered any interesting Mac samples, but the principles are the same. And analysis of a sample would proceed in a similar way. You might use different tools um, to analyze Mac executables, um, you know, Darwin executables than you would for Win32 portable executables. But still, the concepts are the same, right? It's still an operating system. There's still a computer under there. There's still an API for interacting with the operating system. So, I, you know, the, the, the techniques that you would learn are vaguely portable. <laughs> and there are obviously okay. very there are specifics for operating systems. Different operating systems are different, and telltale signs of badness is also something that you learn with experience. Is this sample bad? Is the sample benign? Is the sample something that maybe the author thought they were trying to make malware, but turns out <laughs> that they made something that was benign after all? Uh, <laughs> you know, these things are all oh, these are all things that I've seen, and these are all things that are possible. 
Um, so, so, so you have different <laughs> different categories and degrees of, of malware. Bad malware oh, yeah. and good malware. Exactly. Well, bad malware and then uh, not that bad malware, I guess. Right. Malware yeah, that I malware guess, yeah, the author's yeah. intended to be bad, but right. actually is defanged due to its nature. I guess I will reveal an interesting sample that I saw last year. Um, last year, I, I found an interesting sample running, unfortunately, in our enterprise environment, and it was ransomware. It had left a ransom note and everything. It asked for bitcoins, the whole thing. And so I grabbed the sample, and it was it was so weird. And I'm sure that there's maybe if somebody knows, if somebody recognizes this sample, then feel free to, to write to Exploring Information Security and tell me the name of this. I, I should... I should talk about later. Talk about later attribution. We should we should definitely table that for later and how it is hard. But the sample that I that I found, um, it decompresses just the, the the standard PHP interpreter for Windows, not malware. You know, it's an executable. Sure, it, it, it's not malware. It's just the PHP interpreter it runs PHP scripts, and then it also deployed this terrible PHP script that would enumerate all the files on a machine that were of a certain extension, like a lot of ransomware does. It only goes after Word docs and PDFs and stuff like that so that your computer can still boot. So it grabs all of the user files on a machine and it reads the first kilobyte of those files and it XORs this kilobyte with a static key that is just specified in this PHP script. And then it writes the file and changes the extension. And then it writes a ransom note to say, your files are encrypted. <laughs> so obviously... <laughs> It was pretty easy to fix. It was we didn't have to pay any ransom. We didn't have to break any cryptography. There was no cryptography involved, right? It was just XORing with the static key. So we were able to read the first kilobyte of our encrypted files, XOR them again with this key, and <laughs> retrieve our original files back. That's so awesome. It, it claimed to be ransomware. I mean, it literally was, right? It demanded <laughs> a ransom, but it wasn't true cryptoware. It didn't actually do uh, encryption. Per se, it sort of obfuscated our files in a way that were that was easily reversible. So yeah, like I said, it, it, it's not like uh, it's not like our files were encrypted with a with a key, and we did not have we needed the private key to, to decrypt them. That was not the case here. So the intention was still bad, right? <laughs> but luckily for us, in this right. case, right. Uh, turns out that that the malware authors did not approach it in a, in a great way. So is there? Has, has there ever been a case on the flip side of that where you just like started standing up and clapping like you were really impressed with the malware? Oh man, that's a great question. I was not prepared for this. I don't think so. <laughs> not the, yet. Most the most common reaction that I have is like I stand up and clap and I think, oh, that's really cool. This is an interesting technique that I had never thought of. This is an interesting technique for writing a program that I had never thought of. Um, and it, it admittedly, it sort of happens less and less the older I get and the more that I see these junk samples. But I, I remember one of the first samples that I ever looked at was a, a macro sample. And it was it was doing it was manually it was manually uh, decrypting strings within itself using the Caesar cipher, which is just rotating characters through the alphabet. <laughs> so the, the key is the number of positions that you rotate. And I was I was I was very excited when I figured out what was going on there. And I I I'd been on the job for a month, you know. I didn't know anything about malware analysis, and arguably I still don't. But <laughs> I think it's like I said, I, I continue to think malware analysis is very is very difficult. Um, but having the, having a CS background absolutely helps. Uh, something else I was going to say that I forgot to say is that the, the other other interesting pieces of background that that you might have if you were to become a successful analyst is you must be good at problem solving. You must enjoy problem solving. Uh, you must enjoy solving puzzles. Every sample is kind of a puzzle, right? It does something. What does it do? You've got to figure it out. 
sometimes you can't just run it and cheat and find out. Or if you run it in a real environment, you can't tell what it did because you're not sufficiently instrumented. Um, solving puzzles, liking solving puzzles is very, very important. Um, another skill that I use a lot, I write a lot of little scripts to do little things here and there that I might write specifically for particular samples to do different deobfuscation tasks or perhaps to patch binaries in predictable ways so that if I see another sample of this kind, I can immediately do these, do, do maybe a couple of steps that I know have to be done so that I can deobfuscate this binary a little bit. So being able to write quick scripts to do stuff is very useful. Um, and that's where, you know, spending a little bit of money for IDA Pro is often useful because IDA Python is amazingly good. And not to say that there aren't other products that will help you out. You know, Ollie, Ollie Debug is, is scriptable as well. Um, and it is very good at what it does. And there are some, there are some pretty good, even there's, there's, there's a lot of Ollie scripts on, on GitHub, that some of which I've even used. <laughs> because they are pretty good and they do unique things. Is there is, so? Is there anything with PowerShell you're doing as far as malware analysis? Oh man, PowerShell is a whole other class of sample that I haven't even talked about yet. <laughs> so PowerShell is incredibly common, and I can't believe that we've got this far without even mentioning PowerShell at all. So PowerShell is pretty popular because if you can, you can run PowerShell in many ways. Some of those ways involve. Uh, sending a script over the network without actually saving a file on disk. And this is this concept of diskless malware that we've all heard about and I'm sure we've talked about in the past. That is doing stuff in memory without hitting disk. So if you can get PowerShell execution on a machine, you can basically do anything. PowerShell is very versatile, um, but even something as simple as just encoding a valid binary file into a PowerShell, into a string and uh, putting it into a PowerShell script um, and then using PowerShell's built-in tools to uh, write this, to maybe write this, even not even write the string to disk, right? You can just execute a string as an executable, if it's a valid executable, of course. Um, so there you go. You've just spawned a process, and you haven't saved an executable to disk. And now it's a lot more difficult to capture a sample, too, because you have to save a memory image, and you have to carve that executable out of memory. Mm, there ain't nothing yeah. on disk. Nobody downloaded anything from the internet in that case, maybe. Um, so PowerShell is scary. PowerShell is sometimes difficult to audit. Um, and it can do a lot of stuff. And it can hide what it's doing very well. Um, there is a, 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 an interesting project on GitHub that I forget exactly where it is, but I'm thinking of invoke obfuscation here, where you can write a malicious PowerShell script and you can evade detection by obfuscating it essentially in an unlimited way, which is a little bit scary. Um, <laughs> Detecting obfuscated PowerShell uh, is is very difficult right now, basically. But PowerShell is PowerShell is scary. Yes, I agree with you. <laughs> it's, it's a huge attack vector, and of course, everybody uh, yeah. has it on because it is also very useful. Right. Um, well, you can't turn it off because if you turn it off, then you lose all of your flexibility and and exactly. pretty much. Yeah. It's, exactly. But I, I've seen crazy techniques. For example, taking a a, a, a compressed binary sticking it into a PowerShell variable, and then using PowerShell's built-in functions to maybe decompress it and then run it, or uh, decompress it, then Base64 decode it, then run it, or decrypt it using some key, using an arbitrary key that came from somewhere, then decompress it, then Base64 decrypt, decode it, then then run it. There, there are many ways to hide samples in PowerShell, but even PowerShell on its own is pretty scary. You know, you could write cryptoware that's just, that just uses built-in PowerShell functions if you wanted to. Wow, oh, yeah. All right, so let's get to attribution because that, that is something 
Uh, like, why would you even want to do attribution for a malware sample? Is it even worth it? So, <laughs> I think it's worth it. I think it's it, it's worth it. So that uh, it's an interesting question. Attribution is very difficult. Attribution is the the art of telling where a sample came from, who wrote it. Uh, did it come from a nation state actor? Did it come from some kid in uh, in a basement somewhere? Did it did it, is it something that was that, that's sort of industrial espionage based and was written by another company perhaps? Um, but attribution, for me at least, is just linking samples together. Is this sample like a sample I've seen before? Because if it is, that means that I can remember what I did last time, and I've now got some. I've got the upper hand. I've got some information that I didn't have before. You know, linking samples together is 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 an interesting problem. How do you tell whether two samples are related? Right. If you can relate enough samples, you can start building a a picture of who is writing them. And in, in some cases, I'm sure, you know, we all see on Twitter and on blogs like that, people identify groups that write malware and they know that these two pieces of malware are written by this group because they are related in these ways. You know, they, they use similar code or they, they have telltale calling cards within them, for example. Um, but attribution, I'm less, in, in my current role, I'm less interested in precisely who wrote some malware, I'm much more interested in seeing if I can correlate samples, basically, and try to identify campaigns, try to identify mm -hmm. pips of activity for related samples. Um, you know, and then if you can glean enough information, you can give it a fancy name like WannaCry. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, yeah. So I can see where it's useful there, and that, especially from a oh, I've seen this before it makes, kind of yeah, aspect. Exactly. It makes it easy to talk about. It makes it mm -hmm. easy for easy to alert others in the industry. It makes it easy to alert others in general, depending on how widespread a sample variant is or a sample family is. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. But, tough to do you know <laughs> just because the sample has has trash strings written in russian doesn't necessarily mean that it came from russia right stuff like that yeah 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 so you're not talking the um the nation state level although it would be interesting to see oh this is nation state level type of malware <laughs> there's like I, a lot of quality uh, yeah in i think the malware. It's, it's well it's tough to quantify that what is a what is a quality sample you know how do right. we it, 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 even if something was what is a nation state actor and why do we care that they wrote a sample for us in some cases, I guess. I mean, it's a, I, I guess it would depend on your industry because they're going to yeah. target certain things more than other things. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, you know, in some cases you may want to, if you can find enough information about a sample, you may want to report it to the authorities, in which case all the information that you have could be interesting. And that's, that's more, in my opinion, that's more the job of the authorities. It's more the job of the FBI to, to correlate things together and determine which nation state actor <laughs> right. these things, perpetrated these particular samples, as it were. Yeah. Okay. So what resources are available for someone wanting to learn more about malware analysis? Oh, man. So the best thing that I have seen, especially for somebody starting out, um, there's an excellent YouTube channel called Malware Analysis for Hedgehogs. A link will be in the show notes. Um, and the, the person who runs this channel, I believe, is called Carsten Han, who is also on Twitter. Um, uh, they, also in the show notes um, and she basically does analysis walkthroughs on her YouTube channel sometimes she walks through particular samples sometimes she just walks through particular techniques like this is how you detect different kinds of packers for example packers being uh, a packer being a way of compressing and obfuscating a malware sample and there are many different kinds right Even that's a whole, that's a whole other podcast in and of itself <laughs> But I, I really like that YouTube channel, and I always point people who want to get into malware analysis to this YouTube channel, Malware Analysis for Hedgehogs, because the videos that are on there are pretty good, and they'll give you a good overview 
and they'll give you a good insight into exactly what you have to do and the skills that you need and whether it's for you or not at all, you know? Mm-hmm. And that that is my main beginner's pick. The main one, yep. Yeah, and we'll have we'll definitely have, because um, Daniel was kind enough to leave uh, tons of links here in the show notes for me to add to the website. So timothydblock.com forward slash E-I-S. And we will have... Um, all those links there, including a lot of the stuff that he's already talked about here. So, uh, who on Twitter do you recommend following? Oh man, I was just looking through my Twitter before we recorded, and of course, I like at Malware Unicorn, and <laughs> <laughs> obviously at Swift on Security. Yep. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm. Well, I've also got here at Malware Hunter Team, who I believe is the the Twitter account who was in the limelight for WannaCry a while ago. Um, yeah. And of course, the Twitter account of the uh, uh, of Carsten from Malware Analysis for Hedgehogs. Um, she often posts pretty good things. The the, the, the person behind this channel, in fact, uh, has wrote an interesting piece of software called Portex Analyzer, which is a useful static analysis tool for for binaries, and it shows you a bunch of interesting information. It's a lot like uh, it, it's it's a it's a good uh, initial recon tool for binaries, much like just uh, looking at imports, much like just loading something in Lord P or loading something in even just a disassembler and uh, reviewing the sections, reviewing its imports. It will. It's an interesting tool that quickly allows you to see things like large encrypted sections. Uh, it does a little bit of, of identification and packer analysis. It does a little bit of jar analysis, I think. It's kind of an interesting tool. Um, and this is, I guess, why she's in this industry. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't already discussed? Oh, man, I feel like we have discussed only a tiny amount of what of what <laughs> malware analysis really is because it's a huge field and there are right. so many skills it encompasses um and if, like i said everybody does it differently and there aren't a huge amount of resources you know there are a bunch more resources if you want to go into pen testing there's a bunch of stuff you can do but it seems like there are fewer resources when you want to do malware analysis um so i think it's kind of hard to get into is that okay to say i don't know yeah. but then again i'm in I, I got in somehow right i i started doing this and that's how i learned i started doing it i did not wait to learn how to do it first you know that sounds a little weird i guess but yeah there's no you you can't really go to school for it other than doing computer science i suppose right. um you've just got to learn by doing and if that's you sitting on your computer at home with a bunch of vm set up so that you can safely analyze samples and you can start poking at stuff so be it that's you know you've got to start somewhere learn yep. by doing i'm very yep. much a proponent of that you start it, you'll learn how to do it. Exactly. If you, if you wait until you know how to do it before you start, it's never going to happen. I like that. Yeah. And, you can and, have that. We'll workshop it. I won't yeah. even charge. <laughs> yeah, and, we'll cut and, all this and, out, right? Yeah, sure. No, no. Yeah, that's that's saying, it's, it's great. That's a great thing. <laughs> um, and then if you they want to follow you on Twitter, let's get you some Twitter followers. Oh, man. You go, you mean, does this mean I actually have to tweet? Yes. Oh man! So my Twitter handle is at not Daniel Ebert, which we will. <laughs> uh, I feel weird already. Best best Twitter name ever. There's that's, nothing to see here. Yeah, let's accurate. let's get you, let's get you some followers, man. And, yeah, and I guess I guess this means I should start tweeting. I've been told that I need to start tweeting, and also that I need to start a blog, and also that I need to do a bunch more stuff. I, I just it's crazy. I, I have a bunch of stuff planned for this year. I really should start tweeting more. I really should start a blog. Um. I think I'm going to be doing one or two more talks this year, one or two more live talks, um, hopefully regarding malware analysis. I, I did a live talk a while ago um, 
about sort of a shellcode 101 talk. What is shellcode and how do shell how to shellcode? What is shellcode in the context of Linux is, is an interesting talk that I did. And again, that's kind of that's an interesting point. I know this is the end, but I'm going to hijack this session. I don't care. There's a lot of overlap between exploit writing and malware analysis as well. So the art of writing exploits, if you, if you learn a little bit about how to write an exploit, that will be advantageous when you come to analyze unknown exploits. That's good. That's all I got. Yeah. No, that's good. I love it. Um, yeah, you need you definitely need to blog more. I, I don't know if anyone can tell, but you have a really strong interest in in this field. I do, uh, and I, I feel show a little bit. Oh man, I just I I could go on. I could go on for hours about each little nugget that we have discussed because I feel like we I've given you you guys a bunch of breadcrumbs. Well, which is good. And, and so I'm going to do what I did. I'm going to do what I did with the uh, with the Johnny Christmas episode, which is a social skills. If if you add something for Daniel and you want him to talk more about or a question, yeah, um, hit exactly. me up, <gasps> Timothy. Timothy, no, no, no. Hit me up, Timothy. at gmail.com. Yep. And if you're up for it, which I think you will be, <laughs> we can uh, we can do another episode. Kind of. Oh, we can do an hour over... on identifying packers, or we can do an hour on. <laughs> No, uh, different kinds of d disassembling different kinds of binaries, or looking at different architectures, or looking at ARM stuff, or looking at hardware hacking, or ah, disassembling firmware. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there so, are so many different things. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and this is already a two-parter, just so you know. Oh God. Oh man, yeah. no. Yeah. How did that happen? Is it 2018 yeah. yet? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. We'll cut all this out. It'll never end. It's fine. No, this is going in. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, well, that that is going to do it, though. So, uh, again, if you guys want to hear more from Daniel, if you have any questions, hit me up, timothy.dblock.gmail.com. Uh, Daniel, thank you for joining me to discuss what is malware analysis. That's no trouble at all. Thank you for having me again. That will do it. Hopefully you learned something. Feedback is welcome at timothy.dblock.gmail.com or on Twitter at timothydblock. Show notes can be found at timothydblock.com forward slash e i s if you enjoyed the show share it with others and rate it on itunes have a good one